Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I then, what was happening a hundred years ago, and it's about World War I now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is September 6, 2017, and our guests this week are Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, Allison Eric, Secretary of the Pershing Park Memorial Association, Denzel Haney, the administrator of the General Pershing Boyhood Home Site, and Jim Yoakum from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Santa Monica, California. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. Before we get started today, we wanted to let you know that next week and the week following, we'll be presenting a World War I Centennial News two-part special, in Sacrifice for Liberty and Peace. Part 1 examines the great debate in America about getting into the war. And Part 2, which we'll publish the following week, is about how events overtook the debate and brought us to the declaration of war. But today we're on our regular format and ready to jump into episode number 36. We've gone back in time 100 years to explore the war that changed the world. It's the first week of September, 1917. On the last day of August, New York's Deputy Attorney General, Roscoe Conklin, certifies that New York City has fulfilled its quota of 38,572 soldiers for the draft. This is notable because the last time there was a draft in New York for the Civil War, It ended in the deadly draft riots of 1863. The 1917 draft, however, goes smoothly. Mostly. It turns out that one of the local boards is selling exemptions, which was permitted in the Civil War draft and, coincidentally, one of the flashpoints for the draft riots. In any case, in 1917, this is seriously not okay. The first draftees are scheduled to leave for training at Camp Upton, The camp is so new that the first men to arrive are going to get to help finish building it. The men trained at Camp Upton starting September 1917 will become the 77th Division and will be the first division of draftees to arrive in France. Moving to the headlines and the stories of the official bulletin, America's War Gazette, published daily by the Committee on Public Information, the U.S. government's propaganda ministry headed by George Creel. This week, we've pulled a variety of stories that mark what was happening this week a hundred years ago. Dateline, September 9, 1917. Headline. Life unbearable in Belgium, says workman who escaped. The following story provides some insight into life inside of German-occupied Belgium. The story reads... I had to leave the seaside place where I had lived since my childhood because life became unbearable. It was slavery. The Germans announced at the beginning of January last that every man or woman from age 15 to 60 would be compelled to work for them. They did not take everybody at once. But once you had begun to work for them, you were never left free again. In order to avoid people escaping to other parts of the country, They obliged us all to go to the command center, 
where our identity cards and our passports were confiscated. As you cannot walk a mile in the army zone without showing your papers, we were practically prisoners. Every week, an officer with two soldiers went from house to house, requisitioning more laborers. They had taken 300 already from my village when I left, and I have no doubt that the whole village is forced to work by now. The work was done either on the spot, where you had to repair and clean buildings, cut wood and so on, or along the Dutch frontier, where we had to build trenches and concrete works, or behind the German lines in the region of West End, where we were mainly employed in building roads and railways. That was by far the worst place, since we were frequently exposed to shellfire and gas attacks. Having no masks, we were obliged to take shelter when a bell rang to warn us. We were paid one mark per day, but as food was very scarce, we had practically to spend our wages to appease our hunger, so that when we came home for one day every three weeks, we had nothing left to bring back to our families. It was no use trying to protest. It only meant more trouble and misery, prison and blows. One of my friends who struggled to escape was nearly killed by a bayonet thrust. Besides, the Germans are only too happy if you resist. They made a rule to send any man or woman who gets more than three months' imprisonment back to Germany, and none of those who have been deported have ever come back. Six months ago, one of my neighbors, a widow, who had to protect her daughter against a German officer, received four months for having shouted that all Germans were pigs. She was sent to Germany, and we have heard since that she is obliged to work in a labor camp and has no hope of returning. This is only one case among hundreds. The German tribunals have provided many Belgian workers for the fatherland. This next story is a lot lighter, and truly a story of the times. With the airplane providing the enemy with a new level of unprecedented intel, a new military assignment serviced as a key man role. That of magician, sort of. Dateline, September 5th, 1917. Headline. Ingenious men who can cast magic veil of invisibility over military works wanted for service with army in France. The story reads... The first American camouflage company is now being organized for service. In official English, the camoufleur practices the art of military concealment. But a more literal translation of that French music hall phrase, for that is what it is, proves him to be a fakir. Now this has developed to a point where specialists, in all manners of devices for concealing the whereabouts and design of our troops from the eyes of the enemy, are grouped together in military units. Therefore, the chief of engineers in the War Department is looking for handy and ingenious men who are ready to fight one minute and practice their trade the next. Wherever a machine is set up, or a trench is taken and reversed, or a battery of artillery goes into action, or a new road is opened, or a new bridge is built, or a sniper climbs an old building, or an officer creeps out into an advanced post to hear and to observe. There must go the camouflage man to spread his best imitation of the magic veil of invisibility. There is in store for our camoufleurs plenty of excitement and no end of opportunity to use their wits. The article goes on to tell about some examples, including papier-mâché steel-lined counterfeits of dead horses serving as observing posts or of a river-painted canvas 
pulled over a bridge by day and used as a crossing by dead of night. The article closes with, Though this work has long been organized abroad, in this land it is only beginning. So wherever ingenious young men are longing for a special entertainment in the ways of fooling Germans, they should waste no time in getting in touch with the Chief of Engineers, War Department, Washington, D.C. Our next story will be particularly interesting to our regular listeners. If you heard last week's episode number 35, we profiled the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where you heard all about the giant ammonium nitrate plants that were built there. This week, 100 years ago, there's a story in the official bulletin that precedes what you learned about last week. Dateline, September 6, 1917. Headline. Preparation for production of nitrates by government announced by War Department. Location of proposed plant is withheld. The story goes on to explain how the creation of the plant is a priority project for the government war effort, but the location is still secret. But you know where it's going to be built, and you even know about the giant hydroelectric plant that they're going to build as a part of it. Isn't history fun? Dateline, September 8, 1917. Headline, Red Cross to Communicate Messages About Persons in Central Powers Territory. The Red Cross plays an ever more important and diverse role in the complexity of this global crisis. In this case, it's not nursing the wounded, but helping acquaintances, families, and loved ones torn apart and separated by the ravages of war. The article goes on to read, Individuals wishing to make inquiries concerning the welfare and whereabouts of friends or relatives in territory belonging to or occupied by the Central Powers may communicate with the Bureau of Communication, American Red Cross, Washington, D.C. Proper inquiries and messages will be transmitted on a special form to the International Red Cross in Geneva. From Geneva, they will be forwarded to the individuals for whom they are intended. Answers will be returned to the International Red Cross and by them will be sent to Washington. The American Red Cross will then communicate the information received to the writers of the original letters. Two, two-cent stamps must be enclosed for postage. A similar method is being devised for the transmission of inquiries from the Central Powers back to America. This will also be handled by the Red Cross. And our last story this week from the official bulletin harkens back to a story we told you about in episode number 26, about Chautauqua. The word Chautauqua is Iroquois and means two moccasins tied together. At the turn of the previous century, the term was aptly used to signify a unique American gathering that brought entertainers and cultures into the far-flung regional communities of the time with speakers and teachers, musicians, entertainers, preachers, and specialists of the day. Former U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt was quoted as saying that Chautauqua is one of the most American things in America. Dateline, September 8, 1917. Headline, Chautauqua Entertainers to be Sent to Cantonments. The War Department can't complete the theaters they'd planned for the tens of thousands of men being sent to training camp, and they're being sent right now. So instead, they're going to create an entertainment system using the traditional American Chautauqua. The article goes on to explain, Entertainment for soldiers will begin on September 10th. 
In four days, ten tents, each with a seating capacity of over 3,000, will be moved to cantonments and programs will be given beginning Monday. The week following, the entire 32 cantonments will be equipped with similar tent auditoriums, in which programs will be given. The new project involves the mobilization of a force of over 2,000 Chautauqua entertainers and the creation of tents with an aggregate seating capacity of more than 100,000 people in the short space of less than two weeks. The economics affected by pursuing the Chautauqua method of circuiting attractions makes it possible to give the best entertainment to soldiers at motion picture prices. And those are some of the stories we selected from nearly 100 stories published in this week's issue of the Official Bulletin. You'll find the Official Bulletin on the Commission's website where we're republishing this amazing resource on the centennial anniversary of each issue's publication date. So if this podcast just isn't enough weekly World War I history for you, dig in daily. Go to our website and read the full daily issue of the Official Bulletin at www.cc.org bulletin. I sometimes do. And it makes me feel a whole lot better about the chaos in our modern world by tapping into an even more chaotic world a hundred years ago this week. Next, we're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator of the Great War Project blog. Today, Mike's post highlights the beginning of the American actions over there, with a series of memorable incidents and stories, including the sinking of submarine U-88, whose captain sank the Lusitania in 1915. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Teo. Here are the headlines from the Great War Project. First Americans killed in France. French are bled white, but are Americans sufficiently trained? What a way to get leave, special to the Great War Project. Some of the first Americans arrive on the battlefield. On September 6th, a century ago, General John J. Pershing, commander of the American army in France known as the American Expeditionary Force, moves his headquarters from Paris near to what would most probably be the American sector of operations, reports historian Martin Gilbert. But, Gilbert continues, it was proving a hard time to have his men ready for action. That same day, the French president, Raymond Poincaré, came to review the American troops. The parade ground was muddy and churned up. Neither Pershing nor Poincaré was impressed with the readiness of the American troops. The American Secretary of War insists no American soldiers shall be sent to the front before they are trained thoroughly. When he hears this, the French Prime Minister, Georges Clemenceau, replied acerbically, it was not a question of being ready. Nobody was ever fully ready. It was a question of helping France, which was exhausted and bled white and needed help. By this time, reports historian Thomas Fleming, Pershing had no illusions about what he and Woodrow Wilson were confronting on the Western Front. Defeat. Pershing, reports Gilbert, understood the almost desperate need of his allies. Still, it looks like Pershing does not intend to bring large numbers of American troops to the French battlefield until the summer of 1918. In the meantime, the first American soldiers in France are killed. On September 4th, writes Gilbert, four Americans died during a German air raid on a British base hospital. On the following day, two American soldiers, both engineers, were killed by German shellfire while repairing a light railway track behind the lines. And the following day, a British mine sank the German submarine U-88. There's an American side to this story. In 1915, Captain Walter Schwieger had sunk the Lusitania. 
Many Americans died in that attack, and it was responsible for increasing pro-war sentiment in the United States. Shortly before Schwieger's death, he was awarded Germany's highest decoration for bravery. Yet his sinking of the Lusitania went unmentioned in the citation. Another incident at the same time illustrates the sadness and irony of this war. A British soldier, Private James Smith, is executed for desertion. He joined the army in 1910 and fought in the Battle of Gallipoli in 1915, was buried by a German shell in the trenches, but survived. His good conduct began to deteriorate after that. Finally, he deserts, is caught, put on trial, convicted, and sentenced to death. Martin Gilbert picks up the story. Among those who were ordered to take part in the firing squad was Private Richard Blundell, who knew Smith well. After the executioner's volley had been fired, it was discovered that Smith was still alive. The officer in charge, who by tradition would then have shot Smith with his revolver, could not go through with it. Instead, he gave his revolver to Blundell and ordered him to fire the shot. Blundell did as he was ordered. As a reward, he was granted 10 days home leave. Many years later, when Blundell himself was on his deathbed, he repeated again and again, what a way to get leave, what a way to get leave. And that's some of the stories from the Great War Project this week, 100 years ago. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog with an interesting collection of anecdotes from the front 100 years ago this week. For videos about World War I, visit our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube. They have well over 400 episodes about World War I, covering the conflict since 2014, and they do it from a more European perspective. This week's new episodes include The Moscow State Conference. Another video is Battlefield One Historical Analysis, where Indy Nidell, the show's host, takes the new game editions and puts them into historical context. And finally, a new episode on Georges Guinemet, the flying icon of France. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. We've moved forward in time to the present. Welcome to World War I Centennial News Now. This part of the program is not about history, but about how the centennial of the war that changed the world is being commemorated today. For our activities and events section, we're going to profile two events selected from the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at www.cc.org events, where we're compiling and recording the World War I commemoration events from around the country, not just from major metros, but also local events from the heart of the country, showing how the World War I Centennial commemoration is playing out everywhere. Our major metro pick of the week is Camp Doughboy. The second annual World War I History Weekend is an immersive, weekend-long living history experience on Governor's Island in New York City, happening on September 16th and 17th. According to Kevin Fitzpatrick, author and citizen historian who helped put the event together, it promises to be one of the largest World War I-themed events on the East Coast this year. It all starts with a ferry ride to historic Fort Jay, at Governor's Island National Monument in New York Harbor. Entry to the event is free and open to the public. There'll be more than 50 reenactors, vintage World War I-era vehicles, free talks by leading authorities on the Great War, and much more. 
Camp Doughboy is a family-oriented event that's sure to create a memorable experience all about the war that changed the world and gave birth to modern America. You'll find links in the podcast notes with all the information you'll need to have a great time at Camp Doughboy. Our second event pick of the week is from Laclede, Missouri. We have with us today two guests to tell us about an upcoming annual event celebrating the life and service of General Pershing. They are Allison Eric, Secretary of the Pershing Park Memorial Association, and Denzel Haney, the Administrator of the General Pershing Boyhood Home Site, which is part of the Missouri State Park System. They're here to tell us about Pershing Days, an annual event in Laclede, Missouri, hometown of the General of the Army's John J. Pershing. The event will be celebrated this year on September 13th, the weekend closest to the General's birthday. Additionally this year, a new documentary, Blackjack, will be making its debut on Sunday, September 17th, following the activities on the 15th and 16th. Welcome to both of you. Morning. Good morning. Okay, let's start with you, Allison. Can you give our listeners an overview of what happens during Pershing Days? And also, how long has this tradition been going on? The tradition of Pershing Days in Laclede was started in 1960 as a celebration of the General's 100th birthday. We have typical small hometown activities such as queen contests and baby pageants. And uh, this year we have activities like bicycle rodeos and cornhole and washer tournaments. So have a new event this year. Uh, for kids' games, we're going to set up a military boot camp for kids to participate in, in which they would go through a lot of the obstacle courses and such that they would in boot camp. And then we're going to present awards to the kids later in the afternoon. A betting company here in town is sponsoring bed races for the first time, as well as our typical bandstand entertainment this year, our headline entertainment is Doug Stone. Our local little theater group have been participating in a group called Blackjack Theater. We always try to present a patriotic theme musical program for the audience. We've been doing this will be our 29th performance and our theme this year is Made in the USA. We're looking forward to building on the theme of our World War I hometown hero and, and getting ready for 2018 in which we can commemorate the victory of World War I. That sounds like a really fun family weekend. Thank you. Uh, Denzel, to, to you, uh, can you tell us a bit about the upcoming film, Blackjack? Uh, who made it? And uh, I understand a lot of it was filmed in Laclede, right? Right. The story behind the film, Blackjack, The Life and Legacy of General John J. Pershing, took some Pershing Rifle College fraternity folks and the uh, high school junior ROTC Blackjacks over to Europe and traveled the different battlefields the cemeteries, monuments, and museums. And then the last portion filmed was the beginning. That's when they brought everyone here to uh, find out what it was that perhaps Pershing took with him from this small community, which led to uh, the triumphs in his life. When is the film going to be finished? Uh, the film is finished, and it's going to be premiering on September 17th at 1 p.m., in our local theater at Real Time Cinema in Brookfield, Missouri. And uh, 
at that premiere event, we'll have, I believe, the producer and several of the uh, young men who were in the film. And uh, we're going to present that. The format is a hour-long film, so they could be shown in classrooms across the country. Will I be able to watch it online after it premieres? I'm not really sure how they've got that set up yet. Joe Hartnett is the uh, producer of the film. You can uh, visit their Facebook page. It's The Pershing Project, and it goes into the making of the film, as well as I believe they have the final trailer or premiere of the film on there as well, a link to view that. And uh, it goes a little more in-depth to what I can really go into today. Thank you, Allison and Denzel. That was Allison Eric and Denzel Haney talking about Pershing Days in Laclede, Missouri, and the new Pershing documentary, Blackjack. Learn more by following the link in the podcast notes. This week in our education section, we've got something very special for the budding researchers in our audience, a shot at $10,000. There's a new academic competition that was just announced for scholars under the age of 30. In this competition, you can apply to research and write a paper on a major aspect of how scientists and engineers in the United States were engaged in World War I. You know, this was one of the most fervent times for technology, science, engineering, and medicine ever. And so the Richard Lounsbury Foundation has funded this academic competition. Five scholars will be chosen and awarded $5,000 each to conduct their research. Additionally, the winner of the competition will be awarded a $10,000 prize, which they can use any way they want. Proposals are due by November 30th, so spread the word and check out the link in the podcast notes for how to participate in this program run by the National Academy of Sciences and the National Research Council. And now for our feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore today's words and phrases that are rooted in the war. This week's word is cooties. You might remember the taunting chants of your classmates as a child, accusing you of having cooties. Or maybe cooties were the reasons you gave why you didn't like girls or boys or whatever. Personally, as a kid, my English was pretty bad, and I had no idea why everybody laughed at me when I asked for chocolate chip cooties. (laughs) Just kidding. The term cooties goes back to World War I, when soldiers lived in horrific conditions that included being covered in lice. Indeed, using a lighter to burn lice in their eggs out of the seams of clothing was a daily pastime for a lot of folks. As a nickname for body lice, cooties first appears in trench slang around 1915. It's apparently derived from the coot, a species of waterfowl known for being infested with lice and other parasites. I bet you didn't know that. Cooties, you don't want them. And it's this week's Speaking World War I word. See the podcast notes if you really need to know more than that. Next, we're going to profile another 100 Cities, 100 Memorials project. That's our $200,000 matching grant giveaway to rescue ailing World War I memorials. Last week, we profiled a project from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And this week, we head to Santa Monica, California. Joining us is Jim Yoakum past commander of Squadron 283 of the Sons of the American Legion. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me, Tao. Jim, a lot of our listeners know about the American Legion, but may not know about the Sons of the American Legion. Can you give us a quick heads up on that? Sure. 
The Sons of the American Legion, our, our program of the American Legion, we're affiliated with them since we were founded in 1932. The Legion itself was founded as a result of the Great War in 1919. And one reason that we were founded uh, as, a, as a separate entity within the Legion umbrella is that the Legion members had become concerned by the 30s that there would be no more veterans of the Great War to carry on the mission of memorializing their service. And that remains a, a cornerstone of what the Sons of the American Legion's mission is. Well, that's very interesting. Okay, so let's move on to your project. Your team is refurbishing a memorial plaque in Santa Monica, California. Tell us about that. Sure. So the Squadron 23 is actually in a neighboring town called Pacific Palisades. We're bookended on the north by Malibu and on the south by Santa Monica. But I live in Santa Monica, and my son graduated from, and my daughter currently attends a Santa Monica High School, which has been there in Santa Monica since 1898. And during the time of the Great War, number of servicemen left uh, Santa Monica, went on to the camps up in the Pacific Northwest and or went off after the camp training to Europe itself. And uh, during a parents assembly uh, for my kids, uh, I noticed that there were a a couple of bookended memorial plaques in an open air amphitheater and come to find out that uh, the amphitheater itself was built as a war memorial in 1921 to those men who gave the ultimate sacrifice during the Great War, who were from the local area. Uh, and I say bookended, uh, there was a World War I memorial, which was placed uh, in the theater when it was built. And then in 1946, a World War II memorial was placed on the opposite side of the stage itself. And both of these memorials had seen better days. They're, you know, they're both exposed to the elements the corrosion and proximity to the ocean itself added to you know, some of the issues. So the squadron took it on itself to try to take a look at what we might be able to do with these things some years ago. But it really wasn't until last year's American Legion Convention when Executive Director Dan Dayton of the commission came to Cincinnati and spoke about participating in the, the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials effort. That's when we decided to really make a push on uh, restoring both memorials. We, we really felt that we couldn't just restore the World War I and leave the World War II one looking you know, really, really sad by comparison. So we, uh, we sought out some expert help. We have a very large uh, Veterans Administration facility in the area that was undergoing partial renovation to the grounds. And we found a bronze restorer uh, who had done some work with the National Park Service on the Golden Gate Bridge plaques and had been, been doing local work uh, with the Veterans Administration and worked very closely with them to sort of assess what needed to happen, how we might be able to do this uh, in fairly short order, given the needs of the school year. The Memorial Theater is used daily by the school system for assemblies, films, and the evening entertainment. Uh, it's, it's a very large outdoor stage. And of course, you know, school ceremonies like graduation, assemblies, what, what have you. So we had to squeeze in our work so that it would fit in certain gaps of the school year. We also wanted to make the rededication of the plaque as personal as possible. We uncovered a lot of history about the 16 men who were memorialized, largely through the work of the Santa Monica Public Library, who had uh, digitized every single newspaper 
of the Santa Monica Outlook back to 1879. These are actual word-searchable uh, electronic documents for every single daily issue. It made it much easier to find out uh, extensive biographies for about 13 of the 16 folks who are named. And um, I think it really brought home that these young men were very much like the students themselves and you know, maybe some of their older brothers who are currently serving in the military uh, right now. Well, thank you very much for the great work that you and your squadron are doing, Jim. Well, thank you, Teo, and thanks for the opportunity uh, to talk about this. It's been very gratifying for the squadron members to see you know, the connections we are able to draw. We found some descendants of one of the men named on the World War I plaque, and they were able to attend the ceremony. And uh, it, it served as a big family reunion for them. And uh, they were extremely gratified. We, were, we made the, uh, the effort to reach out to find them, to let them know that they were, we were doing this. That was Jim Yoakum, past commander of Squadron 283 of the Sons of the American Legion. We're going to continue to profile the submitting teams and their unique and amazing projects on the show over the coming months. Learn more about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program at www.cc.org slash 100 Memorials, or follow the link in the podcast notes. This week for our Spotlight in the Media section, we'd like to direct you to CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Tuesday, September 5th, 2017. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer, and I think it's safe to say both of us hope your long weekend was good. We have one heck of a show coming up for you. We'll talk to two representatives of the National World War I Centennial Commission, Chris Islieb and Theo Mayer, about all of the latest events and news surrounding the remembrance of the United States' entry into World War I a hundred years ago. And Theo is the host of their podcast. That's right. So he will definitely know the latest news coming out of the Centennial Commission. So a big show is on the way, and it all starts now. It was a really good interview, and we invite you to take a listen by following the link in the podcast notes. And yes, Theo and Teo are the same person. For our articles and posts segment, we explore the World War I Centennial Commission's rapidly growing website, now over 3,000 pages of articles, information, and stories that you'll find at www.cc.org. Our first highlight today is a new article about an often overlooked part of our military, the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard and its aviators played a vital role in World War I. In 1916, Congress authorized the Coast Guard to develop an aviation branch, including aircraft, air stations, and pilots. Historically, the Coast Guard was originally with the Treasury Department, you know, to catch pirates and smugglers. For World War I, they get put under the U.S. Navy. And today, after 9-11, they're part of Homeland Security. We invite you to read the story about a commanding officer of a Coast Guard Naval Air Station, Phil Eaton, who led the first fight between the U.S. Coast Guard's naval aviation and a German U-boat menace in U.S. waters. Learn more about Phil and his other contributions as one of the Coast Guard's first aviators by following the link in the podcast notes. Okay. It's time for an update for our Write blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship. This week's post is Champagne, Champagne, and World War I. 
This article is for literature, history, and yes, champagne lovers. Motivation for weary World War I soldiers? Try champagne. In 1915, the French government voted to send champagne, the bubbly, celebratory drink, as a morale booster for the troops. Meanwhile, Champagne, the French region and source of the world's most elegant wine symbolizing celebration and peace, amassed severe wounds as a strategic point on the Western Front. Don't miss this well-researched, insightful post written by journalist Marcia Dubrow about the region, its signature drink, and what happened to it during World War I. A votre santé. And that brings us to the buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, you have two articles to tell us about today. Take it away. Hey there, Teo. Following up on the Bulletin article calling for camouflage magicians, we shared a photo from the Great War Channel's Facebook page this week featuring some interesting camo. The image is from Company F of the 24th Engineers and was taken at American University in D.C. in November 1917. In it, an Army Engineer Corps soldier stands in a black-and-white striped uniform meant to conceal him while climbing trees. He stands in front of a house camouflaged to represent a fence and trees, one of the many tests run by the Army Engineer Corps to figure out the best way to use interference camouflage in the war. Lastly, for the buzz this week, we shared a link on our Facebook page from Rex Passion, a man who recently published a new book, The Lost Sketchbooks, A Young Artist in the Great War. The book follows the service of Edward Shenton, who served with the Pennsylvania National Guard and saw action at the Marne, Fisme, and the Mozargon. He carried a canvas-bound sketchbook with him throughout it all, and the book features many of his detailed and beautiful drawings and watercolors. Follow the links in the podcast notes to learn more about these stories. And that's it for the buzz this week. Thank you, Catherine. And that's World War I Centennial News for this week. We want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, with an interesting series of anecdotes from 100 years ago this week. Allison Eric and Denzel Haney giving us a taste of the annual Pershing Days and the upcoming Blackjack documentary. Jim Yoakum from a 100 Cities, 100 Memorials project in Santa Monica, California. Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director, and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. And of course, this podcast is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. If you like and appreciate the work that we're doing, please support it with a tax-deductible donation by going to www.cc.org donate, all lowercase. Or, if you're on your smartphone, you can text the word WW1 to 41444. That's the letters WW and the number 1, texted to 41444. You can text any amount. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www1cc.org cn. On iTunes and Google Play at WW1 Centennial News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at 
WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories you're hearing here with someone about the war that changed the world. Did you know that cooties were also known as arithmetic bugs? It's true, because they added to your troubles, subtracted from your pleasures, divided your attention, and multiplied like hell. So long. <laughs>